Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. By the time I got into high school, that's where I started to, with peer pressure, teenagers, evolution, sciences, just start to say, you know, maybe this religious stuff is just not accurate. And you're just sort of brainwashed as you go through education to, to be led away from God. I did not understand the angst that was out there. I did not understand all of the unanswered questions and that churches do not teach the Bible in complete context and they teach all apart sort of in between but it leaves unanswered questions to understand and make sense of polytheist history we need to understand there's something called a parent god and an offspring god these are rebellious angels they have their own host led by satan this understanding that they rebelled and they understood that adam was created to be the resolution to the angelic rebellion that things are going to play out through free choice they're going to try and make sure that humankind doesn't reach their destiny to be raised up like angels even though we have human fathers and they're there to ensure humankind is led away from god and utterly destroyed to be remembered no more from the face of the earth just as they tried to do with israel after the flood there is nothing new under the sun it's the same plan Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. We're joined today by Gary Wayne, author of the book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. And wow, what a fun ride we had talking with Gary today about a myriad of topics from unicorns and ancient bloodlines and the corruption of the earth before and after the flood and the counterfeit gods and how all of that plays into what we are dealing with today, the beast system, the Antichrist that is coming. Uh, This is all tied back to ancient times, and it's all connected to many of the counterfeit ancient religions. Uh, All of this stuff is connected together, 
And um, boy, we just touch a little bit on on some of these things and how they connect today. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Gary. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I decided to load up on my iPad (laughs) just to make sure I wouldn't have any issues. And then it's kicking me out. I'm going, what the heck is going on here? So, so I, I have to break the ice by telling you this. Uh, so I bought your book oh, thank five, you. about five years ago. And yep. uh, obviously it's uh, a lot of research you put into yep. it. And, yep. uh, and um, I happened to cut, catch you on Nate and Luke's program, Blurry Creatures. Yep. And, <laughs> and I was really enjoying the interview. And then I get yep. to the end, I'm like, Wait, I own that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, what, what was I talking about on Blurry Creatures? I've been on them a few times. So. You have. I, I, I probably, uh, it was probably the very first episode. Um, okay. Uh, so we're probably looking for. On Chimeras, yeah, maybe? Yeah. yeah. It, it might have been. And I know you've been on there on different subjects. Uh, I was just yeah. kind of refreshing my mind with CERN and yeah. a lot of different things. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and Gary, I um, I'm a slow reader, and uh, so <laughs> I was like desperate to try to find an audible version of your book, which there isn't one, right? There isn't. If there, if it is, it's not authorized. But it's not I authorized. Have no problem. With so, it. so here, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. <laughs> so here was my workaround. So <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I was able to uh, to have with the Kindle, and then with a text to speech app. Yes, I yes, I, I was work. able to listen yeah. to it, and I'm like, man, I'm yeah. gonna. This is gonna take me months to get through. So I was able to finally yeah. get through it that way. Yeah, well, and a lot of people have looked at it. They just said, you know, audiobooks don't sell that well. Like it's a it's a niche of the market, right? I mean, it might be whatever five percent or whatever, but so they look at the uh, time to invest and the expected return. So. Okay. I get a lot of excited people, and then they get into it, and they said, no, no, we're not doing this. And then I had a couple that was doing it over in Europe, and they spent a year doing it. They just wow. had it finished. They were really excited, and then as they're getting ready to publish, uh, they woke up one morning, and it was all gone. No. And they, oh, had, no. And they had spiritual attacks all the way through on it, so it's like they were just so worn out through the experience wow. that... <laughs> so, wow. I mean, I I can't verify all of their details, but just the story, and and they were giving me updates as they were going throughout the year. So I'm thinking, well, this they're not doing a hoax, and I actually authorized them to do it. So, wow, <laughs> wow, interesting. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Luke. But no, but yeah. but no matter, I get my message out there anyways. <laughs> That's right. Well, That's we right. we definitely appreciate your your time. Um, yep. And uh, this subject's kind of been. Uh, uh, something me and my brother have been talking about for the last 10 years on and off. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that I, maybe I know my brother and I talked about a bunch of questions to ask you. Maybe we could start because I don't know your, your kind of your story, your history, sure. where you came from. Yep. Um, and uh, maybe we could start there. We, yeah, I'll, that's a good idea. And don't be afraid of whatever question you want to ask. We can go anywhere you want to go. I'm very, very comfortable. If I don't... Uh, don't have don't know the answer. I'll say so. I'm pretty honest that way. So, um, so 
Yeah, I kind of backed my way into this. This was uh, not something that I had intended to do. Um, and in the beginning, hadn't even dreamt about doing. So when I was about 20 or 21 or so, I was I had my brother and one of his friends over for Friday night beers and stuff. And sort of late into the evening, one of them said... You know how much courage do you have? And of course, at that age, you know we can we can do anything. <laughs> We'd almost be Nephilim-like as in terms of our attitude, even though I didn't even know what a Nephilim was back then. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, "Yeah, what, whatever it is," and I had no idea what book they were talking about. And uh, so it turned out to be a book called "The Late Great Planet Earth" by Hal Lindsey, who was a terrific uh, writer way ahead of his time um, in the '60s and the '70s. And so it scared the socks off of me. So, but. I'm a contrarian, so just because he said that that's so doesn't mean that it's so, and I wasn't ready to sort of accept these things like false prophets and antichrist and all these other sort of things, even though I had, you know, when I was young, I had gone to church, and by that time I was, you know, pretty much with the secular side, evolution, the whole bit, uh, pretty much where all my peers were at, and so... I looked up all the verses and seemed to be accurate, but I also know how the Bible is manipulated and how people twist things, and was it in context? Was it just sort of pulling something out where it sort of fits a specific agenda? So I thought, well, how do I, how do I verify this? Well, I guess I have to start reading the Bible. So, you know, you read the Bible through once, and that takes a long time, and then you go and say, well, there's a lot in there. <laughs> so then I said, well... <laughs> I'm going to have to track all the prophecy narratives because I started seeing things that were, you know, right from Genesis that that there's a lot of prophecy in the book. And so I decided I would highlight as I went through. Well, I didn't get very far and I'm running out of highlight colors, so that's not working. So then I decided I'm going to write it all down on notepad and put it in files and name the files and I quickly understand I'm going to need a bigger file drawer because there's so many different narratives. So that's what I did. And as I went through, I mean, the first time I read, I just went, wow, Genesis 6, whatever that's about, that's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm on a mission on this other thing. Then you start to log it and you run across it again. You're going, oh, still not ready for whatever that is. That's crazy stuff. So... But, you know, about the third time through, I, just thought, I decided, because I wanted to make sure I was getting everything on the prophecy, is that uh, might as well log this, because we have things that are coming up that I can't explain. And, you know, by the time the first read-through, and I wasn't logging anything, and by the time I had gotten through the Old Testament and then read the first four Gospels, I mean, I was, I was sold. Um, nobody can speak that way. Absolutely nobody. Nobody has before, nobody will again, because what he says is just, is preternatural. It's just, it just blew me away. And I'm not a guy that's easy, was easily blown away. So then I decided to log everything I could about the Nephilim. Then I had to go through a few times when I realized I didn't realize all the different kinds of Nephilim and things. Mm. Right? So there's, there's a lot of work and research here. So at some point in time, though, I had everything logged. And in about the mid-90s, I decided, uh, and I had even created binders with narratives in it, just for me, just so I could keep all this information. So I have many of these binders with verses and my little notes in it, and I hand-typed it. That's how old I am. And <laughs> then I thought, well, 
you know, I probably have 10 or 15 books here if I really wanted to write a book. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I don't know whether I can get published. Um, I don't know whether or not anybody would read my book, anybody would buy the book, um, and whether or not anybody would like the book. So I thought, well, why don't I just try to write a book? Um, and it should be a short book, right? Don't make it too big because <laughs> you've never done this before. So I wrote the first 10 chapters on, I thought, well, let's do an easy subject, the one that was sort of nagging me. And, and, and as I realized in hindsight, there was a reason why it was nagging me. So it's almost like became my mission wrapped into the prophecy uh, quest, so to speak. And so I decided I would see if I could connect uh, and make sense of the giants created in Genesis 6 with Revelation, because we're talking about angels, we're talking about demons, we're talking about um, giants, we're talking about these kings of the end time and these creatures in Revelation, and, and, and you get sort of those trailings all the way through Scripture. So I wrote the first 10 chapters pretty easy. Mm -hmm. But then I realized uh, that, you know what, before I started on this quest, I was a real history buff. I was a real mythology buff. And I knew deep down that what was being talked about in the creation of Genesis and in a lot of the mythologies as they get into some of the sort of more obscure stuff is very similar to end time prophecy. And so I thought, well, I, you know, I don't know whether Christians really connect the dots on this or not. But I know I can bring up stories that are parallel stories seen through a polytheist lens about the same events in prehistory. So I decided to add that in. And that didn't take that long. I mean, there's a lot of different cultures. But in each of those cultures, what it dawned on me was is that, and I hadn't realized it before, that the culture was completely interwoven with the religion. And both were completely over, were interwoven with the governing hierarchy. And so that implies also the pantheon of the gods. And so to provide proper sort of context, I need to, uh, to better understand those religions. Hmm. Right? So I could, you know, make sense of it. And some of the polytheist religions have so many different allegories and things that can drive you um, around the bend trying to figure it all out. But I'm not mystic, I'm not an adept. So I decided I needed to read as many scripture books around the world I could find, whether it was in India, whether it was with the Popol Vuh, whether or not it was the Gnostic scriptures, the Mormon, I mean the Quran, all the ones I could get my hands on that I was sort of interlinking into the book and I needed to have a basis on that, whether or not I was going to quote directly from them or not, which I ended up not in a lot of cases because I wanted the adversarial forces to speak for themselves in terms of what they believe, not what I saw in there and I decided to take out. And so when I did that, though, I realized that there's something else that's embedded in that history and with those polytheist religions, it's secret societies. They come out of the mystery schools that were sponsored by the elite and the, and the religions. And it was a knowledge cult, developing that knowledge cult, that developed the secret societies. And we see a reflection of that with the seven liberal arts taught on universities today with all of these different initiatory societies, whether it's, you know, whichever Greek name you want to apply to the house that is on, they are 
a secret society up to the level of like skull and bones in in some of the uh, uh, Ivy League uh, universities uh, specifically for people climbing the bloodlines. So I needed to learn about secret societies and I knew nothing about that. So that was like 10 years down the rabbit holes trying to learn about secret societies. So then when all I had it and I'm feeding the stuff in, then it's, you know, can I, you know, get this thing done? Because I'm like 1,200 pages worth of stuff. And so it's too big. It can't be published. So you got to weed it down. So it turned into, you know, 98 chapters and an epilogue and a preface. So it might as well be 100 chapters. And so then I went on the uh, journey of trying to get it published without a platform. So I'm a rookie uh, writer and no platform. So high cost on the book and high risk. Yeah. <laughs> so not, not an easy thing to do. But I managed to get through all of these things. And then I was told when I published the book, he said that, you know, all the promises that you were told about marketing and stuff, you're not going to get any of that. So if you want to... Uh, have any sort of success or chance of success, you're going to have to be your own marketer. And I'm not on social media. I, <laughs> I didn't do any of that. I you know, didn't do any media interviews before. So I got on social media and things just sort of started to roll. I got some interviews and things have been sort of rolling ever since. So that's how I got into it. So I, I was brought back to Christ um, because of that challenge and because of the research and that my contrarian views said to me, I have to overturn all my preconceived ideas and I just need to let the information lead me to what I, sh what I should be doing and what, how I should be thinking and let things sort of fall as they may. And so as we speak, I'm just starting the, which is something I said I would never do, I'm starting the editing process. I got the first section done back from the editor for my new book. So I wrote a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy targeted specifically at Christians this time because uh -huh. I, I, I did not understand the angst that was out there. I did not understand all of the unanswered questions and that churches do not teach the Bible in complete context. Mm -hmm. They do not teach prehistory. They do not teach prophecy and they teach all apart sort of in between but it leaves unanswered questions and so I was just inundated over the last seven or eight years with supplying information and answering questions and I thought you know Christians need a book that's out there that talks about all of the giants in the Old Testament all of the hybrids that are out there um, all the complete angelic order loyal and fallen how that works how we know you know where they rule from that they're in charge uh, how we know uh, how the hybrids were created how we know there was a second incursion although let's leave leave the door open for other ways of them surviving but that seems to fit the Bible the best in terms of my view and how we know that the wars in the Exodus were giant wars and you know, so I go through every campaign giving all the details nobody's been really taught in detail. And it's all there in, in the text, the narrative, and the Hebrew words as you take it back. And then as I'm doing that, I'm laying out all of the allegorical terms that people are going to need to help define end-time prophecy. Because right. a lot of understanding prophecies, you have to understand the context that starts in prehistory. And so you have to understand those allegories as it goes through the Bible to particularly decode the book of Revelation. So the second book is called Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, 
how understanding prehistory and giants helps define end-time prophecy. And by the time I get through the prophecy side, of it, I've laid out a chronology for people. I've also laid out my approach. Yeah. Awesome. What, wow. That's what, quite an overview. And uh, go ahead, Pete. Well, I was, you, you mentioned how um, this, this challenge, this research brought you back to Christ. And I've, I've listened to a number of your, your podcasts on, or uh, interviews on different shows. And if, if you didn't mind too much, I wanted to ask you a little bit about kind of your, your coming to Christ testimony, your religious background. And yep. then also, because you mentioned, I think, on one episode I, I heard you on, uh, how you were, you were, like you said, a history buff, but you were into the, the mythologies and, and things like that. And I think that's kind of how you're uniquely suited to, to talk about this now as a believer. Um, so if you yeah, mind, it, so, yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, some, some really good points there. So yeah, I was, you know, baptized, uh, United in Canada is where I'm from. And it's kind of a sort of a not too deeply entrenched scriptural type of church. And it's sort of a conglomeration of churches as you know, the West was expanded and people, people were looking for a church. So it was kind of, I think it was kind of a, uh, uh, an amalgamation of many different sort of branches. Uh, but I was raised uh, until I stopped going to church when I was about 12 or 13 um, in a Baptist church. Mm-hmm. And they had a few references to end-time prophecy, but nothing significant, right? And so they never taught about uh, anything. They did teach things about the Old Testament, but they never explained what a giant was in the Goliath story. <laughs> they just sort of glossed over it. So... By the time I got into high school, that's where I started to, with peer pressure, teenagers, evolution, sciences, just start to say, you know, maybe this religious stuff is just, you know, not accurate. And and you're just sort of brainwashed as you go through education to, to be led away from God, which is, again, part of what they do, right? The three things that the seven sciences were designed to do, and then especially after they merged with the knowledge from heaven, um, is to lead people away from God is the number one thing. So they don't have to believe in, uh, the polytheists don't have to believe in evolution. They just have to use it as a tactic to lead other people away from God. And so the other things, the other three points that the sciences were designed to do was to uh, dismiss God. Um, and to de- and to degrade him down to the same level as another sort of god or an alien. And the third thing was to not give God credit for anything and to slander him. I guess that's part of the second one. Um, and the fourth one is to honor their gods in all that they do, all of their buildings. That's why you see polytheist gods and demigod names and everything named after them. They're honoring um, their knowledge religion and their pantheon with the development of the religion and the knowledge. And so that's how, that was my upbringing, and I I don't have a university education. Um, So everything I've done is self-learned, but I was very early a contrarian, and so that's sort of what has driven me. So when I was young, I read anything I could get my hands on on history. But history only goes so far. So then you have to get into sort of the Greek and the Romans, and they're talking about these ancient historians and that threshold from sort of prehistory and what is sound ground for 
the prehistorical knowledge and that led me into all the different types of diff- mythologies and you know fairies and you name it it was just I was I couldn't stop reading that so you know I was a bit sort of nerdy that way I guess so mm-hmm. um, so that's that's kind of um, how I entered into this challenge that was presented and not expecting what was going to be happening next and not anticipating that. And so did I come back to God in a way that was instantaneously and like that, even after when I read Jesus' words, I knew that was something that was not known in this world other than there? Um, No, Uh, kind of, but not really committed, right? Okay, maybe this other stuff over there isn't, really accurate or true, but am I ready to commit to this? Well, I'm a bit of a contrarian, so, and I'm a bit rebellious, so I don't not, I just don't say, you know, flip that switch on. It's a process. And writing the book and doing the research was a process. I mean, from the beginning on the research with the amount of time it took, you're saying, what am I doing this for? Well, because I want to know. Well, why else am I doing that? I didn't know. Uh, But at that time, I just wanted to know. So when I started writing the book, which took, you know, over 10 years to do, it was so many times that I would say, this is crazy stuff. Nobody's going to believe this. And so that's why I write what I do in, in the preface. But so many times after I would leave it, I would leave it high and dry because I, I just didn't want, I wasn't prepared to go through what it was going to take to go through today to finish the book and then the possible repercussions. But there's always this calling and it always like it would never stop. And it was like this faint thing in the distance and I could suppress it. I could tell it, you know, maybe go away type of, but it, it wasn't being ominous. It was just calling me back to what I had committed to do. And so I would come back and if I was frustrated on, getting some information, things would just come to me. And so anytime it was off the track, things just sort of put me back on the track. People would give me things that they said, oh, I'm not sure I agree with what you're doing, but, you know, this might be of your interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things like that and books uh, that I found that were inexplicable how I came about them. Did you you have some... um uh, influences along the way. I mean, obviously you're doing your own research, but you know, like the late, uh, Rob Skiba was, was talking about Nephilim and things like that 10 years ago, whatever. Mike Heiser, did, did you find, okay, I've got other voices out here who are talking about this stuff and encouraging you, or did you not hear those guys? You know, the only person I really read on prophecy was uh, Hal Lindsey. And everything okay. after that, I wanted to learn on my own. Yeah. So when I started to get into the giant aspect of it, um, I mean, nobody in Canada talks about giants in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't aware of any other writers out there. There were people before me, of course. Um, but I didn't read their work. And even if I would have known about them, I wouldn't have read their work. So when I did my second book, even though I'm aware of all of these individuals, I, you know, I, I don't want to be influenced by their work. Uh, with this latest book, I do have to recognize that what Heiser was doing had an influence on me. 
Not that I've read any of his stuff, but yeah. just the whole concept that I got way better at that because I thought, you know, this guy, he's on, he's on to more stuff. And that was a very, very important part about what I did from the ending of writing the first book to the writing of the second book was to getting very, very familiar with Hebrew and, and Greek to, to finish off what I needed to do for Christians, I think. Yeah, absolutely. At least in, in, in this portion of the giant side. I'm finding some parallels to even Josh McDowell, you know, where he was, you, you kind of had a challenge, he had a challenge, and was like, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to research this stuff. Yeah. And through the research the Lord revealed himself to you. You know, you said it wasn't instantaneous. I don't think it was instantaneous for him either, but it was, the evidence was compelling and just, you know, from an academic, um, yep. you know, it was undeniable. Well, and, and it just fed on my um, sort of fascination with mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you had context yeah, so, you for know, it, right? like, yeah, so I understood what they did in other cultures. So right. I'm, you know, it, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that, you know, there's a there's the same story that's going on here. Like in, let's say, in the Atlantean story, you have Poseidon, who is, you know, a, an offspring god after the flood, but he sort of inherits from Iapetus, a god before the flood, who created Magog, Gog, and Albion as three of his sons, and he created more. But Poseidon marries uh, somebody, uh, a, a daughter of humans after the flood, and her name is Alchemy. And she creates, between Poseidon and herself, ten demigod kings of Atlantis. Interesting. Well, it's the same and story. A, and, 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 isn't the, <laughs> and isn't the definition of a demigod a mixture between uh, something divine or supernatural and a human. Right. Yeah, and even yeah. More, even even so we're more, talking about a, a hybrid or a Genesis yeah. six yeah. type of situation. And even more specific in the ancient sense, as the actual offspring of a god or a goddess and a human female or a male. Wow. So yeah. So and and as that as that offspring, they're not fully God, which is why they're a demigod, but they're their divine representatives on earth as they understand that relationship. And so they are superior to the humans because of that divine creation. Yeah. I, I think what kind of what you're describing in having that worldview of how all of these polytheistic um, and pagan religions throughout history are all talking about things that the Bible describes. And yeah. I, I made a note here as I was um, trying to come up with questions for, for our talk, but this was more of a comment that I wrote down. Is It's just interesting how the world seems so much more interesting than Christianity, <laughs> and yet Hollywood stories, all the best novels, right? Dungeons and Dragons, all that stuff... That's God is in that, and that whole story it, yeah. is weaved together. Yeah, Lord and, of the Rings, the yeah. Tolkien's, the Narnias, the yeah. So, so the world of Seth and his descendants down to Noah are an island in this sea of the rest of the world yeah. before the flood. After the flood, 
Israel is that island mm-hmm. in this whole sea that they are all interacting with. After the diaspora of Judah and the rise of Christianity, we are living in that sea of the nations. And yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that there's a separation. They've been interconnected all the way through. One is from the polytheist view. One is from the monotheist view. But we can't just dismiss that whole history that we've been part of when those things actually likely for the most part were true what the polytheists documented worldwide. Right. You know, that's why you have pyramids worldwide. That's why you have giants worldwide. That's why you have a flood story that's on all continents and all cultures around the world and probably in Antarctica once we figure out what's there as well. Mm -hmm. That's why the little people are there um, all over the world. That's why there's the same identical pantheon on all continents around the world. They just have different vernacular names. It's the same creation story around the world. Um, from the creation of chaos, which is the similar story to what happens in Genesis from a monotheist perspective. Yeah. It's just, once you understand that they're talking about the same things, they just have a different lens they're viewing it through, things start to make sense. And I think it's an incredible bridge, too, to the rest of the world, to to other interests, other beliefs, other religions. You know, you, it's easy to to maybe pick on the... The kind of uh, nerdy guy who's into fantasy and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, he's talking about all these creatures or all these things. Yeah. And I, I have a, a, a buddy of mine um, who could never get himself to get into the Lord of the Rings. And I would say, okay, you're not into fantasy and stuff, but yeah. they're really good movies. You should still watch them. Well, now, if I were to talk to him again, I would say, not only are they good movies... There's reality in this stuff. It isn't just let's create a creature because that's interesting, you know. Yeah. yeah. So well, yeah, and the Lord of the Rings is a classic um, example, and you could take you know unlimited numbers, but Lord of the Rings is an antediluvian story. How do we know that? Because at the end of the trilogy, you see all of these creations that were created before the flood by the fallen angelic realm, they are sailing away. And in their allegory on that, uh, that is the water is representing the flood. And they're going to, the survivors in this particular allegory are going away through portals into other dimensions, right? Because now it's the age of man after the flood. And so... You have these creatures that are in there. So you have like these little dwarves, which are part of the little people, part of the ugly column of little people. Yeah. And they live in the earth and in mountains and they manufacture weapons. Um, well, that's what they're in mythology. They, they did. They made the weapons for the demigods. Uh, you have like, I won't go through all the different ones, just, just to give people sort of a sense here. You have obviously the sorcerers and the wizards. These are the priests and the priestesses that are managing that those seven sacred sciences and that illicit knowledge that the Book of Enoch talks about that was provided to humankind that merged. 
And in other cultures, it was the gods who provided all the knowledge and part of the whole religious sort of uh, structure that went with it. And so we have these grand sorcerers or wizards, which is, again, part of uh, what we would call a priest or a priestess today in the occult world. You have these uh, white elves that are shown in um, Lord of Rings. And the White Elves, they're not as tall as they would have been as they're represented there, but they're pale-skinned. Um, they have blue eyes. They have blonde hair. They are the noble uh, elf, the noble fairy, uh, the, and they are uh, the noble Celt. White Elves are larger than the Dark Elves, which are part of the ugly ones. So there's two different kinds. And these, this depiction and the horses, the white horses and the things that they ride, it's the picture of the riders of the Shea. That's S-I-D-H-E. That's the Tuatha Dé Danann. There's a famous painting you can Google at, riders of the Shea, and you'll see them riding these white horses. And it's a post-alluvian Tuatha Dé Danann, but it has imagery of their history and their genealogy. So there's serpents and snakes and all sorts of things going on in there. And the horses are wearing a golden um, helmet, uh, with, so they, but they can see through uh, the slits for their eyes. And then there's this unicorn horn because the antediluvian giants wore these chimera unicorns into battle. <laughs> <laughs> like it's all part of the legacy, but those that depiction with the writers of the Shea is the white elves that you see in Tolkien's allegory. So they they put all of this into it, and they write fabulous stories. Right. Um, I was going to ask you about uh, unicorns um, because yeah. <laughs> can I if I can just share a brief anecdote. So we had some uh, demonic spiritual activity in our house growing up and we brought in, I don't know where my parents or family found these people, but they're like, Hey, you got to get rid of some of these occult type objects that we didn't even think were a big deal. And one of them that they brought up was these, my little pony unicorns. Can you talk just briefly about like, what is, what is the evil (laughs) uh, uh, heritage of this, of this unicorn? And there's two parts to it, yeah. so be patient with me okay. here, um, <laughs> because we're we're going down the rabbit hole here. Yep. Um, and so the unicorn, um, as it's depicted in ancient ology, is a giant horse that the giants rode on into battle. It was a perfect animal for war, so that its horn could gore an elephant right through and split him in half. It mm-hmm. was that sort of powerful. Depictions of them, as you look at the paintings, they have like serpent-like tails. They have different hooves. They're a chimera. So these aren't a normally uh, derived being that has multiple animals in it and created for war. Okay. Uh, just as the Book of Enoch provided, uh, Azazel provided all of the knowledge, not only for the weaponry, but for the arts of the war. So they would have had this DNA technology to do chimera. We know in Greek mythology, chimera was... A standard sort of doctrine as with other um, uh, mythologies and that's how, one of the ways you also get the little people but that's another rabbit hole but this is uh, a being that um, is not this cute little horse that was playfully playing and missed going on the ark mm-hmm. this was 
illegally created. So you have a word in the flood story called the earth, is, which is the word corrupt or corrupted. So the earth was completely corrupted. Well, that's the Hebrew word shakath. And that means decay, okay. ruin, pervert, words like that. So the whole earth was that had happened. So that means that that happened to, and this is this application of this advanced knowledge that we're just catching up to today. So they had the ability to manipulate DNA. They had manipulate uh, the genomes of plants. So one deduces that the whole earth was corrupt, and I think that's very specific language said more than once in the flood story to underline it, that all the plant genomes for the most part were perverted. All the DNA was perverted, both in humankind, for the most part, and all of the animals. So God called all the different kinds. That's take that back to Hebrew. It's talking about species. So the best representative species that would not have been corrupted. So the unicorn probably existed and wasn't called because it was an impure form. It had been corrupted. And so uh, that's the known side. If and not people know this, but from a from a known sort of uh, preliminary understanding in the occult what the unicorn is. And the unicorn has a horn that is like a is an allegory for a third eye. Okay. And that third eye gets you into the other dimensions and into the communication with the divine essence or with their gods and can provide knowledge. Now, also in the occult religions, the unicorn is an allegory for an angelic being. Hmm. And uh, it is an allegory for one that is associated with being a warrior. And, and it's associated with one that has knowledge that, that helps distribute. Okay. And so in polytheism and in Greek mythology, they have the best descriptions of it. You might see Apollo and Zeus and other Greek gods riding their chariots of the god. And they're usually depicted with white horses. Um, but in other uh, depictions, they're also depicted with a horn of a unicorn. And this is a chariot of the gods. The polytheists counterfeit everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely everything. They like to be like God. Yep. Just as Satan was. And so everything's a counterfeit that they're doing. So biblically, and of course the polytheists and the ancient alien mythos really looks, likes to uh, jump on Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 3, and Ezekiel 10 for this chariot and the wheels within the wheels. Mm-hmm. And they say that's exactly what's being talked about in um, polytheism with these Greek chariots of the gods. And that in the book of Psalms, what pulls the chariot is a cherubim. And so a cherubim is one of the watchers, right? There's four watchers. There's archangels. There are seraphim, which are the serpent-faced, six-winged dragon angels. Uh, you have the cherubim, which have four faces, uh, one of a human, one of a bull or an ox, one of an eagle, and one of a lion. And then you have 
another being in the wheels. And in the wheels, um, the wheels go back to the Hebrew word Gilgal, but the being in the wheels goes back to the word Ophan. And this Ophan that's in the wheels um, has one of the faces, has four faces, one of the faces is of a cherubim. So there's something a bit distinct. It's a different kind of watcher angel. And you put the I am male plural, you get Ophanium, and that's the fourth group of watchers that are depicted in the book of Enoch. So you have these cherubim that are pulling the chariots, as the book of Psalms talks about, the chariot of God, God's throne. And you see this as a counterfeit allegory for polytheist pantheons, that they have their thrones and their God. And the crossover is, is that the cherubim is the allegory for the unicorn angelic being. And it is the one that provides knowledge in its responsibilities and is also a warrior type of angel and as depicted guarding Eden after Adam and Eve are um, ostracized and they have these flaming swords, right? And they cover the throne of God and some say they even partially protect. I don't think God Almighty needs any protection, but he has angels there for a reason, and they have that ability probably, you know, created to, uh, in preparation to, uh, to defend off, uh, you know, in the angelic rebellions in history and what will come down the road again. So in their understanding is, is that this is part of their um, belief system that cherubim are part of the third eye access to the information, which is the unicorn horn. So that third eye is, is they're sort of interchangeable. And unicorn is also understood prophetically and why the word ram, uh, which is Hebrew for wild bull, was translated as unicorn in the King James Version Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's to represent sort of King James, the mighty giver, mighty giverim Prince James, who had declared the divine right to rule from... Yep. Mount Hermon, essentially, uh, from the Baalim, Um, he is going to put his imprint through Francis Bacon, Rosicrucian, (laughs) who creates the English language (laughs) that King James Virgin Bible is used for. They're going to put unicorn throughout, and including um, a connection in there to Mount Hermon, and to the unicorn, and to Antichrist. So if you now go into prophecy with Daniel um, seven and eight, you have this little horn that rises up amongst the ten horns, and it's a single horn as it's described in Daniel eight, the unicorn. And so this is going to be some sort of special connection to Antichrist with the angelic beings and his ability to access that great knowledge, because he's going to do and say things that are unheard of. <laughs> They run deep on their allegories. <laughs> wow. Is that connection that? that you just just referenced? Because my next question before we were going to move on yeah. I, I, was, why is that symbol used so prevalently today? It is everywhere. There's unicorns on everything. For a mythological yeah. being, it seems sure seems to exist yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna, expect that the polytheists are going to draft those marker words to help deceive people in the end time and to make that connection that Antichrist is the real Messiah. Um, 
uh, in a way that uh, I'm struggling to figure out how they're going to do it, but they put it there to be used. Well, and you referenced it, it's the third eye. So yeah. if it's not an actual horn or an actual, it's still something, yes. yep. you know, that's tapping into the supernatural yeah. to receive knowledge and, and, exactly. and insight. And, and both the false prophet and Antichrist, uh, both described as horned individuals, one in the New Testament as false prophet with two horns and a single horn in, in the book of Daniel, both receive their power from Satan, whether it's right. described right, as the right. dragon or Satan. Second Thessalonians 2.4 is pretty clear when it says Satan, the dragon is, uh, you know, that's the serpent and the dragon in Revelation 12. Dragon and... Uh, serpent were understood as the same kind of thing in antiquity, but so there's no question in Revelation 12 he's also called the serpent, that ancient serpent, and Diablos, the the devil, right? Who's the prince of the demons and prince of the fallen angels? So it makes you know the Bible is very very thorough and covers off the details, and so Satan is also we you have to understand him then as at one time, partly seraphim. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yep. But also partly cherubim. Because okay. in Ezekiel 28, he's the one, uh, is, he's the cherubim that was in Eden and walked amongst the fiery stones. Right. But cherubim don't walk amongst the fiery stones. The seraphim do. Hmm. Isaiah 6. So he's something, he's a combination and he's unique. Okay. So he's also lost his nine jewels, which is an allegory, not an allegory, but a description for a ministry, just yes. as the Levites have 12 jewels. We were just and, talking about that with Ryan Peterson. Yeah. 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 The, the ephod, and, right? Yeah. yeah. And there's a void there for that high priest, because he was the high priest. That's why Jesus, after uh, becoming the Word made flesh, Sacrifice resurrected as an immortal, as the book of Hebrews talks about him, will be the head of the Melchizedek order. Right, right. And Melchizedek the is the priest. one who, who blesses Abraham, who's going to create Israel, who's going to create Jacob, who's going to create Judah, who's going to make way for the Messiah. And the book of Hebrews says... From the order Melchizedek, of Melchizedek. Yep. Melchizedek has no genealogy, no mother or right. father. That's that's no beginning, like, no end. Melchizedek is like the angel of the Lord. It's the pre-existent Jesus, who is the word of the Old Testament, the Jehovah mm. of the Elohim. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's fascinating. I, I, this, this is so, it is very fascinating. I, I When you brought up the, um, the beginning of um, the unicorn, and you were describing how it was a chimera, demonically uh, created literal being that yep. the, the, the giants would sit on. Yeah. I'm wondering about dinosaurs. Do mm -hmm. you believe when flesh was corrupted and the animals were corrupted and the plants were corrupted, do you believe that the, the creation of dinosaurs and then the, the remnants of the bones that we're still finding, yeah. you know, is, is tied to that manipulation? It certainly could be. It could be another possibility, too. Uh, same thing, maybe different time frame. So let's start with what dinosaurs are. Before the last couple of hundred of years, as the Rosicrucian Royal Society created um, 
organization that started modern science that all education and universities uh, report to was Rosicrucians and Freemasons, and they called themselves the last of the sorcerers, the first of the scientists. So when you see that word sorcerer in the King James Version Bible, you, got, you start to understand there's another marker, and you need to dig a little bit deeper on the meanings that are going there. You have... Um, a word that was used for these bones and creatures before dinosaurs. It was called dragons. That's right, yeah. So serpentine-like beings. Mm -hmm. Now, the, as the knowledge is being released to us, is that many of these have feathers. Maybe most of them had feathers, mm -hmm. as they're starting to even start to show them. And so imagine a being that has a serpent face, that has six feathered wings, hmm. that is a watcher who rebelled, and would they create beings that might have looked like them and play to their, their rebellious narcissism quite likely, and that um, you get descriptions of these beings like in the Popol Vuh and in, in Central and South America, you have the feathered serpent gods. Right. The plume serpent. Yep, Quetzalcoatl. So, or is that Quetzalcoatl and many other names? Yeah, you get, yeah, Quetzalcoatl. Yeah, yep. yeah, and uh, and this goes right through the First Nations of North America and right through to the tip of South America. You have the Nagas in um, India. You have the dragon creator gods in China. It's it's a well known worldwide. These are the seraphim angels. It's why many of the gods are depicted as Let's say 90% of the gods are depicted as serpentine dragon creatures from prehistory because that was the ones who ran the religion and ran the government. Um, Trubans were more for the warrior sort of aspect and the Ophani were for the throne sort of aspect. And then you had the seven archangels that would, and anyways, I won't get too, too deep into it, but it starts to make a little more sense of the prehistory. So whether or not they corrupted them in the days after Eden, or maybe even before Eden, uh, after day six, or even even before day six, they were corrupting these beings like themselves. Now, I'm very comfortable saying that science lies to us all the time, um, that they're, they're not always accurate. A lot of what they say is fact, or 99% of what they say is fact is usually theory or preconceived conclusions. I'm fine with dinosaurs being located then, but I'm also fine that they could be older, so that when you get into Genesis 1 and 1-2, I call it the renewal of the earth, as opposed to the gap theory, because Psalms 104 calls it a, a renewal of the earth, and that's when the spirit hovers over. So when you see the spirit hovering over the, the void and formless earth at that time, um, that's when the renewal starts. And so you can translate Genesis 1 as the world became void and formless, as opposed to was. And that would, Im would include that an angelic war is the likely cause of that destruction that destroyed it right down to the foundations and that the waters above would have collapsed down into the earth. So now when you get into the creation story of days one through six, 
it talks about the steps of the renewal of the earth as Psalms 104 would describe that. So you have the separation of the waters again so that you can create life on the earth. And that matches up with uh, the book of Peter with the earth that was in water and was out of the water was, was perished. Well, the flood didn't destroy the whole earth, only what was on the land, not what was in the sea. So the whole earth didn't perish. And so that also meshes then well with Exodus 20, where it talks about the six days of creation, where heaven and earth were created in six days. Heaven can be defined as the dwelling of heaven, what's inside the firmament, and what's outside of the firmament. So as you get through in the days of creation, it says the firmament was heaven. Mm-hmm. And that, that matches now up perfectly with Exodus 20. So you know, if you're concerned about the age of the earth, then we need to be open to the fact that what our preconceived conclusions were may not be what was actually communicated in the world, could be much older. And for me, an angelic rebellion would be much better placed before day one sometime between day one and day two. And Psalms 104 and, and Job's 38, 4, 7 talk about the angels were created before creation. Yeah, yes. they were there yeah. at it, right, watching Yeah, it. Yeah, well, yeah. So they could have somewhere between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 rebelled, had a war, as what the Vedas sort of record, these monstrous weapons, and you have that earth destroyed down to its foundations. You can't destroy the foundations biblically, which is what was renewed in days one through six. So, but for me, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I just think that matches up better in terms of the chronology that it would be an older rebellion and that Satan was already trying to deceive Adam and Eve through the Nahash, the serpent in Eden. And we have no explanation for who this intelligent serpent walking, talking, Right. intelligent being was yeah. that was in the garden. Yeah. And he was already in a fallen state during yeah. the renewal. Yes. To observe the creation, the renewal to the creation of, and the formation of, of mankind, his replacements yeah. in a sense that was going to take on the likeness of God and the role of Melchizedek and the, yep. you know, the, um, the priestly role that he had, yep. which yeah. is, an offense to him. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I was. I was just going to ask what your opinion it was on the um, ancient apocalypse uh, timeline. Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson putting that that apocalypse about uh, ten thousand eight hundred BC. But if if they are referring to the flood, Noah's flood, what that was more like? What like four thousand BC or something? So I didn't know what you thought about that timeline or if it's the same event. What they like to do, like and, and Hancock, I'm a fan of of his research and writings. Um, he does have a, a Gnostic slant to it. I have a Christian slant, mm-hmm. um, but I try and look at at the facts. So again, if we look at what a day is. Um, again, in the New Testament, in the book of Peter, where it's talking about this ancient destruction uh, of fire that is going to happen again in the end time, a day is a thousand years. So, what we do know is, is if that's true, and I have no reason to just 
viewed it wouldn't be, uh, was, you know, is, is Genesis 1 being talked about in terms of a day for God, and then that's translated as a thousand years for humankind? Could be either or. But if it is a thousand years, you've got, uh, from day 1 to day 7, you've got 7,000 years. You, and with humans being created in day 6, well, the problem with the day 6 story and the Eden story is, is that the details don't match. There's way too many details that are different. I have a great document on, on this. Again, people want to get a hold of me through my website. I'll send you. I have the gap. I have uh, the differences between day six and, and, and the Eden account. And then we don't have a day eight as what we're told there is. There's no saying day eight. We don't know the time difference between the Sabbath, first Sabbath day, and when Adam would be... The created with a created for a special commission to be uh, the resolution to be to the angelic rebellion, and by inference, then those people of day six would have already been corrupted. We know Adam's the same species because the word man and Adam come from the same word, Hebrew mm -hmm. Adam, right? So they're the same species, but it starts to make sense in terms of the races that are created. They're probably created in multiple, as they are recorded in day six, where you have a singular creation of one individual, and then later um, Eve is created in a different way from, from a rib, and those are just the beginning of the differences. Like, there's a significant... I believe the Bible doesn't have a conflict. It just adds more information. So getting back to Graham Hancock. So if you have creation in day six, right, um, and we're counting... Uh, a flood uh, happening about uh, 3000 BC by secular records, 2500, 24 to 2500 BC by biblical chronology, but because it's Hancock, he's using secular, so let's use the secular analogy. Then you have uh, from there to the, the, what is it, the, the greater Dreyer or Dreyus. Uh, thing that he's talking about, I think, is, mm -hmm. is, is I, I know I'm, I messed that up, sorry. But you've got like 7,000 years there to about 10,500 BC or 9,000 or 8,000 as they kind of move that date around a little bit. Uh, but you've got a time frame there. So after day six, you've got 1,000 years for day six, that's 1,000. Day seven is 2,000. Could be a gap of two, three, four, five thousand years before the creation of Adam. But it's not the flood story. Were there many floods? Yes. And polytheist records talk about many floods. But the Atlantis story is not 10,500 BC. That's just an overlay. There's never any evidence to present that. And they can't even agree on when Atlantis was, where it was located. Right. And, and things like that. So that understand there's an assumption that's an overlay that plays to people's sort of biases. There were floods before that. And in the Plato story, um, in Timaeus and Critaeus, two different aspects of it, and where Solon goes down to Egypt to the Egyptian priests and gets the exact story off of the pillars, um, they tell him about the great flood, but that there have been many floods before mm -hmm. that. So it could be just one of many, but what they do is, is they leave out 
the inconvenient parts of the stories to conflate things to their preconceived conclusion. So was there a flood in 3000 or 2400 BC using biblical chronology? Yes. Was there floods probably before? Probably yes. I have no problems with that. I don't have a problem with the chronology. I just don't like to get stuck into the genealogy back to Adam. Right. When that's all that that is showing, and we're not told when Adam was created, and the only way you can get locked into that if you accept the Bible as contradictions. Okay. Which I don't accept. That makes sense. Wow, that's really good. Um, Man, we're going to have to have you back, Gary, because there's just too much to talk about. Uh, (laughs) uh, We wanted to get into bloodlines, and hopefully we can touch on that, too. Um, But since, since we're still in the Old Testament, at least for now, one burning question that I've had for months, right, is this De- Deuteronomy 32 judgment of the gods, mm-hmm. where, yeah. where where God is saying, you know, you're corrupt, you mishandled things, you're going to die like men. And I've never been able to figure out or hear from that's, people, yeah. wh- when okay, did... That's Psalm 82. I'm sorry, Psalm 82, and then the dirty Deuteronomy 32 yes. dividing of the nation, sorry. Yep. Um, yep. When did these gods go bad? When did they become corrupt? Because they they weren't like part of Satan's rebellion or or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So, do you have any documents or any any opinion on that? Well, why wouldn't they be part of Satan's rebellion? You could make an argument they went bad later, but okay. we're not told when the whole rebellion happens. What we are told is that in Revelation twelve, by the midpoint of the last seven years. Uh, with the dating provided with the number of days left until Armageddon, um, that one fully one-third had rebelled. So you can make an argument from that that there, they all rebelled at the beginning or there was a progression and maybe even right up to that point. I'm thinking they all swore oaths. I think they swore um, uh, harem anathema right from the beginning. So you have, if that's the case, you have these fallen angels who created the... Crimes against humanity, creation, and the Holy Spirit before the flood. And they went to the abyss prison. These are the parent gods. And I'm going to have to explain that, um, but I'm going to come back to that. So these are the ones that created the Nephilim before the flood. These are the ones who would have uh, done the shakath, the corruption of everything on the earth with that sort of technology. And with the creation of mother goddesses, in their dualistic religion, they're counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Oh. Everything's right? a counterfeit. Everything's a counterfeit, right? And so the only sin that's not forgiven is the counterfeiting of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy. Yeah. Book of, yep. So once we start to understand that, we would understand that those gods went to the abyss, as they're talked about in Jude 1.6, Second Peter, and these are the ones in First yep. Peter that Jesus is going to visit right. while he's still in the grave and saying, when I resurrect on the Sunday, your rebellion is faded to uh, completion and you're going to be going to the lake of fire. It's sealed. You have not prevented humankind from being resurrected to be like angels, um, even though we have human fathers which is the promise of the resurrection that's talked about throughout the New Testament, as the sons of God, even though we'll be called sons of God, even though we have human fathers. So it's not the sons of God in Genesis 6. We have a great document on that for people if they want it. Um, 
and that um, <clears throat> these are the ones that we're going to judge for the crimes against humanity in the future time as well, as the New Testament tells us. So these are the parent gods, and they went to the abyss before the flood. To understand and make sense of polytheist history, we need to understand there's something called a parent god and an offspring god. So, parent gods ruled before the flood, offspring gods rule after the flood. Bring that into sort of real-life mythology and, and, and Greek history. Kronos was the father of Zeus. Kronos created giants before the flood. Zeus creates giants after the flood. How do we know that? Because I used that example earlier. Zeus, through alchemy, produced Hercules after the flood as an offspring god. In Canaan, to bring it biblically, you have El as the parent god that rules from Mount Hermon before the flood and creates giants. His offspring god is Baal and other ones like Mot and Amaru and all of the Baalim that are going to rule after the flood. Baal takes over for um, El. In the Greek pantheon, Zeus takes over for Kronos or Uranus, depending on which form of the, those legends that you're talking about. Osiris takes over, and Isis take over after the flood. Anki and Anlil take over from Anu, who is the parent god in the Sumerian pantheon. It's the same story all over the world. These are rebellious angels. They have their own host, led by Satan. So that word host is the Hebrew word saba, meaning an army. It has rank, file, mm -hmm. and order. Yep. Run like an army. So if the parent gods were thrown into the prison, then others would rise up. Now, if they commit the same crimes after the flood, which is my preferred position, as in the Ugaritic text as sort of a parallel backup, the Raphaim, which are the Raphiu and the Raphayim, which are the kings and the healers and the giants and the bloodlines of the kings, um, were created by Baal and Ashtaroth. And they're doing fertility rituals for Baal and Asheroth to come back to create with humans more giants. Because these are the terrible ones. Uh, Ugarit, which is Ug Arit, Ug as in King Og. You take that back to Hebrew, it's O-W-G and its root word meaning round or stout, which is one of the descriptions of the giants in, in the Old Testament cover this all off in great detail in the new book. That's spelled U-W-G, U-G. Arit is terrible. Aritim would be terrible ones. So when you see terrible ones, as in Ezekiel 32 or Isaiah 25, and there are more examples of terrible ones, but to give some biblical examples, the terrible ones, the Aritim, Arit, singular, I am male, plural, as in seraph, seraphim, cherub, cherubim, Ophan, Ophanim, as we talked about earlier. This is uh, the city of Og, the terrible one, who is a Raphaim. Giant goes back, as it's describing most of the giants in the New Testament, not to Nephilim, or in the Old Testament, not to Nephilim, which are only before the flood, only shows up three times, twice in the evil report in Numbers 13.33, and once in Genesis 6.4, just to get through that quickly. The other times, except for once in the book of Job, giant is um, translated from Gibor or Gibberim. The other times it's Rapha and Raphaim. Okay, so he's a Raphaim. 
just as the Anakim or Rephaim, not Nephilim, that's how you know it's embellished in Numbers 13.33. Deuteronomy 2 tells you that. The word giant for Anakim is Rapha and Raphaim. So you have Og, the terrible one, uh, that's his city. So it would be called in, 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 old, in Hebrew terms, Kiriath Ug Arit, city of Og, the terrible one, just as Kiriath Arba, the patriarch for the Anakim giants after the flood, mm -hmm. city of Arba, the patriarch for the Anakim, as the book of Joshua yeah. talks about. So these are the, uh, the Balim that uh, are creating the Rephaim after the flood and giving the divine right to rule to these kings to rule. That's been passed down through uh, divine inheritance ever since, through the bloodlines. So now you have this terrible ones, they also have, as it's defined in the terrible ones in Hebrew, they have a fertility issue. Mm. Uh, and they're childless, as the definition goes, So, which is why they're needing to have more, or they're going to have to reproduce with humans, which is what they're going to do to make sure they don't die from the face of the earth. So this is the Balim that's ruling for Mount Hermon after the flood from a biblical perspective. This is the council that... Um, Satan rules about. So when Satan in Isaiah 14 is trying to raise his throne to be like God amongst the congregation of God, this is the counterfeit congregation in Psalms 82. Mm. And these are the ones that um, are the children of the Most High, which is another term for sons of God, Most High. Yeah translate that back to, it doesn't matter how it's, they're talking about the same ones. And so they can die as gods, but only the omnipotent could kill something immortal. Mm -hmm. From our understanding, we don't know what that means or takes place. And it could be that that die is not necessarily a die, because in the lake of fire, they're going to be burning forever, right? So, but they're away from God. So, however you want to define that. But these are the ones that are ruling the earth and Satan sitting as the prince. And the Balim took over that assembly as offspring gods after the flood, and similarly in all of the different pantheons around the world. Now, Deuteronomy 32. This is talking about, and there's different translations to the Israel aspect, and I don't want to get right. too, too long on this, but yep. um, it's the sons of God, the mm -hmm. sons of Israel. Israel, as you take that back to Hebrew, is Sarah and El. It's, it's a compound word that Israel accepts as a nominative, but it's the sons of the ruling God, is basically as it's uh, translated in the original Hebrew form. So whether it's translated as the sons of, sons of God, angels, whatever translation you're getting, it's talking about something before Israel was even created. But it's applicable to Israel because they're also named Israel, Jacob changes his name, or is told to change his name to Israel. Mm -hmm. So in Deuteronomy 32, it talks about the 70 nations that were the same number as the sons of Israel, sons of Jacob in Egypt, 70 sons. It's the same number as the 70 patriarchs, mostly named except for nine, in the table of nations in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles, and the same number of the sons of Adam before the flood. So there's 70 nations before the flood, 70 nations after the flood that this council rules over that Satan sits above. Okay. And these are the ones that are going to be uh, dealt with in the end time. Mm -hmm. And God says, die. I take him at his word. Whatever that 
term death is um, for angels, for immortal beings, that's what happens to them. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Um, with the time we have left, I know Luke wanted to get into bloodlines, so maybe we should we should go there. Um, one of the well, I, I, I don't want to shortchange it either. I don't want to shortchange it, but um, one of the questions we had, and and Luke, you can um, kind of spin this or, or ask it a different way, but how I had put it was, what is the connection to? the um the royal bloodlines and nephilim dna and maybe that's uh, to to ask uh, ask it another way when you when you think of the title of your book genesis 6 conspiracy is that the the conspiracy in a nutshell or how would you describe that term and then how does that relate to the to the bloodlines, the bloodlines? relating yeah. into so, what's coming so before the resurrection when everything's done and obviously, as the book of Corinthians talks about, we're told that the angels don't know everything. They know a lot. They don't know everything. They didn't anticipate the resurrection. Otherwise, they wouldn't have insisted Jesus be crucified. Right. right. They would have made sure that that didn't happen. Yep. They wouldn't have tried to have killed the Messiah before uh, he became an adult. Um, so you have... Um, this understanding that they rebelled and they understood that Adam was created to be the resolution to the angelic rebellion, that things are going to play out through free choice and that angels have free choice all the way through. So they have to choose, they have the choice to continually convict themselves, which they do, but they also are trying to, before the actual fact of when it's too late, at the time of the resurrection, they're going to try and make sure that humankind doesn't reach their destiny, to be raised up like angels, even though we have human fathers. And so they're going to try and destroy humankind. So that's part of what I call in my first book, The First Revenge in Eden. Because Adam had immortality, access to the tree of life. He had all the knowledge access from God. He had technology and whatever because he had to run this country, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. large country from the Euphrates to the Nile and manage it. They were growing crops. There was, there was farmed, uh, like ranching for animals, all types of cattle. There were orchards. Um, and so he had all of this knowledge. He had immortality and Satan brought him down. And obviously Adam and Eve didn't realize that once they ate from the knowledge of good and evil so that we could be like God that would start a domino effect where they wouldn't have access to the tree of life anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're ostracized from, from Eden. So that, that was the deception. But God has a larger plan. Um, and then there's children. So Satan, in his sort of next revenge, he's going to ensure Cain, Cain rebels. And then he's going to utilize Cain and their lineage to bring about the, uh, the Nephilim. And that's another revenge. And the Nephilim are there to take over society because they're so much bigger, so much more powerful. Um, and probably other gifts that were provided through that exchange of the DNA in taking the ability to have a physical form. Uh, and then you pass on the DNA. So you need, as a spiritual being, you need a what is called an oikotarian in the physical world. That's in the word habitation right. in Jude 1.6 or house of heaven in Second Corinthians five two that means a dwelling place for the spirit. 
So that's the soul and the body. That's of this world. The spirit comes from heaven. Your, your soul and body goes to dust when you die. The spirit goes back to heaven. And whether it's sleeping or whatever, the allegory that's used throughout the Bible is you're in a sleep state. Yeah, versus the counterfeit spirits where they don't sleep. So they're the demons that wander. Mm. Short story, get back on topic here. And so <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have uh, this passing on of this DNA to these giants. Um, and they would look just like them. That's why you have a lot of the kings that look like serpents, ah. as they're depicted in mythology, seraphim angels. It's not hard to connect dots once you, you figure out what's going on here. And they're there to ensure humankind is led away from God and utterly destroyed to be remembered no more from the face of the earth, just as they tried to do with Israel before the, or after the flood. There is nothing new under the sun. It's the same plan. What has been will be again. And we'll go through this in the end time again. It's part of this free choice playing out because God is greater than, greater than free choice. So they're there to take over society to destroy them and lead them into oblivion. And they get to that point because there's only six of the whole, or eight of the whole earth that are worthy spiritually and physically to survive to try again. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's part of the revenge. So they're there, and when they show up again after the flood, they do the same thing. They take over all the kingships. They impose their polytheist religion, and then they start genocides and persecutions and try and wipe the whole belief system and corrupt all of the DNA and make sure humankind does not reach their destiny, but the resurrection trumps that. Mm -hmm. um, so all they can do now is destroy as many as they can and maybe try and bring about the ordained time before it's ordained time to try and prove that they, that God is not always right, isn't all powerful, and they should have a realm of their own, which they preach in science fiction like Doctor Strange all of the time, the Earth, and negotiate a treaty against the Dark Lord of the Universe, as they like to call the God of the Bible. So they are trying to destroy us, um, and their demigod offspring were created to do that for them. And there's a reason for that. Just as there's a reason that angels don't slander God. They know how powerful he is. They have their followers and their demigods do the slandering. So Antichrist will slander God, but you won't hear Satan slandering God. You don't hear fallen angels slandering God. They use the beast's creations to do that. And the beast's spirits to do that. They're very, very smart. Very, very powerful, but they do understand the power of God, and they never thought they could win. They just wanted to have their own realm. So when they take over all of the kingships, they take over the complete nobility society. In the old feudal system or the old forecast system, they're going to populate the top two between the bloodlines, the priesthoods, the noble elite, which is the further sort of size of the families of the bloodlines. Then you have a very small entrepreneur class like blacksmiths and potters and bakers uh, that can meter out uh, a little bit better living than the slave and working class. That's the system. That's what they're going to try and replace. That's why they're trying to kill the middle class right now uh, to get that system back in, in, into place. And so... These are the royales. Roy, 
as you take that back into its meaning into Old French and into um, Latin and then back into Indo-Aryan for rule, um, this is Ra is king, R-O-I. Right. A-L is a transliteration. It could be easily spelled E-L. So look at Baal, which means Lord God or Master of God. And A-L is one of the transliterations of E-L. E-L is the Hebrew word for a god or an angel. I-L is a transliteration of that. I-L-U is a translation of that. A-L-L-A-H is the female format of it. Just as Gibberah is the female format of, of, uh, of Gibberim. And Eloah is the female form of Elohim. And that it can also be used in terms of power when it's used in the Hebrew language, as also as, but also for a female aspect of, of a god or an angel as well as they manifest themselves in, in, in this physical world. So you have uh, this this kings of God word formed in the word royal, um, and this is the bloodline that they track their genealogies back to specific patriarchs of Nephilim, then back to specific um, angels. And so King Charles III, um, he says, and he's on record for taking his genealogies in part back to Vlad the Impaler, um, which is the character Dracula was based on. Um, you know, a demonic, blood-drinking, vampire enemy of Christianity and God, and means son of a dragon. And as you take that back in uh, Dragon, Draconta, as it goes back to Greek, means watcher. You can't make this stuff up. It's just there if you follow the etymologies. He is uh, descended as a Tuatha Dé Danann from uh, the Agrisi tribe of the Scythians who were produced through Hercules and somebody he married, who is the son of Zeus, to produce that bloodline tribe of the Tuatha Dé Danann, or the Datanu, as they're called in the Ugaritic texts, and the tribe of Danu, and a whole bunch of other different names. And so they keep these genealogies because it's where they fit in the hierarchy. And how pure that bloodline is and how other bloodlines are grafted in is where they fit in that whole hierarchy. So there's a complete hierarchy of the visible ones on earth who answer to the invisible ones. We fight not only the visible ones, but the invisible ones. They get their divine right of authority from the council of gods on Mount Hermon. Wow. So, so this is what we're up against now, right? And that kind of leads us to today. And maybe if you're willing to come back, we'd love to have you talk about how this ties into today. What is this Antichrist beast system, yep. this bloodline that they're preserving to counteract God? And, and what are we dealing with? You know, CERN is part yeah. of that and, and all that. It, it all is, because what has been will be again. We're just seeing a replay of what's already happened. That's why we're told and instructed to understand the days of Noah as part of the three overarching signs of our Redeemer uh, of the chronological events that he provided for us. And so it's important that, that we understand that. And if, if we're closing off, off the show, then I'll, I'll get people to think about this um, for the next show, um, mm -hmm. is that that word beast is not used 
without meaning and purpose. So just as we talked about beast uh, spirits and slandering of God and Antichrist-like being, which Antichrist does in the end time, like Nimrod was doing. <laughs> He's an, uh, an Antichrist-type figure. These, uh, beast is a very, very important term. And so this is something that is almost not human, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's totally has gone to the other side. And so we have empires that are talked about in the book of Daniel uh, with that seventh empire with Antichrist being the beast empire, which is the eighth empire that will be coming in the end time. They're called metallic empires in Daniel 2, but in Daniel 7 and 8, these are beast empires. Okay. Beast empires are the bloodlines of these Raphaim giants after the flood that form these. And if we want to understand the beast empires, we're going to need to understand the connection in prehistory, what happened in the connection to giants and the bloodlines, hmm. and how they're wanting to bring about the end time before it's ordained time. Does, does that tie into uh, Fritz um, Schumacher? Gosh, I'm going to butcher his last name. The guy that wrote the, the 13 bloodlines of the Illuminati? Or is that um, much, that's a microcosm of it? Yeah, yeah we ought not... So consider the Illuminati the top bloodlines. Yeah. Okay. It just and we can cover this off on the on the on the next show as well because it's again like a show on itself. There's a hierarchy of the secret societies and the bloodlines and the bloodlines occupy the top, but the Illuminati is one step above Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. On the Thelemic tree, as they call it, there's a lot more organizations at the top. So these are at the Freemasonic and Illuminati level. These are distantly recognized bloodlines that are trying to intermarry and do grafting of bloodlines or scioning upward so their descendants can play a larger role. So are there bloodlines of the Illuminati? Sure, but they're not the, the significant bloodlines. Okay. So if we're talking about DuPont or Morgans and people yeah. like that, that's not the real bloodlines. They okay. answer to the real bloodlines. Okay, that wow. makes sense. Wow, we should get into... Uh yeah, secret society stuff uh, next time. And then eschatology, of course, I want to pick your brain on that. But, yeah, how it all ties into today and what's coming. Because I know there, there's some people that think a lot of revelations already happened. But, I, I mean, my personal opinion is it's kind of the already not yet. We had a partial fulfillment, but I know that's a whole topic in itself. It is. It is. I'd love to jump into it. But. Oh, man. <laughs> there's, there, we're, we're putting the teasers out there, the breadcrumbs yes. for next time. It's yeah. all fantastic. So you, you, mentioned, you mentioned your book, uh, Mr. Gary. Mm -hmm. um, give us a, a quick um, timeline on that. You said you're, you're editing and stuff, and then we also would like you to, to plug um, where people can find you. Obviously, mm -hmm. the Genesis 6 conspiracy Yep. It's the one you're you're known for. Um, yep. Share that with our viewers, please. Yeah, so the best way to get a hold of me and the best way to buy my first book and then my second book, um, the editing process is going to happen between now and the end of June. I've got the first section back from the editor that i got to go through, and I have to authorize okay. every everything. It's a process. So I'm expecting August, September for publication um, as Great. we go through the work on that. 
so best way to get a hold of me in the, and the new book and the first book is through my website, genesis6conspiracy.com. That's the genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. On the website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, just the tip of the iceberg as to what's in the book. Um, it's just loaded with information from chapters 1 through 98, and it doesn't stop coming at you. If you wanted to buy the book, you can um, link over to the buy now page and you can buy from me get a signed copy if you're in the u.s go to the u.s page if you're in canada go to the canadian page if you're anywhere else in the world go to the overseas page and i'll uh, send you a signed copy if you wanted to get the digital version you can link over from the website to kindle and get the digital version and if you wanted to shop at uh, amazon.com amazon.ca or barnesandnoble.com to buy the book you can link directly from my website over to that it's available on most online bookstores um, and it's distributed by bookmasters out of Pennsylvania I think they've changed the name I'm gonna have to update that but your your uh, local bookstore if you wanted to support them they could order it in if they don't have it on the shelf uh, so if you wanted to get a hold of me for some of the documents that I talked about um, on the on the media page where it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview um, that's my email address. You click on that, that's, and that email address is genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. So click on that, or genesis6conspiracy at gmail.com. Pretty easy to keep the connection there. Um, and that will come through to me. It might take me six to eight weeks to get back to you, but <laughs> I will get back to you. Yes. Um, uh, I, I, I do make that promise, and I do promise to try and catch up as I get this book off my plate and get back down to uh, you know one to two weeks sort of uh, wait period. So that's the best way to get a hold of me. If, if um, you're interested in um, wanting to see me and you live in the Atlanta area, I am there this uh, coming weekend. I'm at the Sacred Word, Word Prophecy Conference. I'll be doing three things while I'm at the show. Uh, and I'll be available all throughout the show, whether it's uh, we're a table or I have set up that we'll also have books at. But around the lobby, I will be visible. Come talk to me. Ask me questions. Um, it's the Sacred Word Revealed Prophecy Conference. I will speak on Saturday on some of the more obscure terms that's used in the book of Revelation. And then I will provide a book of Revelation chronology for all the seven years of the end time. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. Wow. Um, and I will show you how to, how to assemble prophecy in a very simple way that just makes perfect sense. And it gets you out of all of these preconceived conclusions for eschatologies, which has to redefine what Jesus said, has to leave out inconvenient passages, all sorts of things like that. So, and you'll see how it actually works just as I do that in my in, in my new book. So that's this weekend in in, in Atlanta, and uh, so chronology and Revelation terms, and then I'll be doing an Ask Me Anything, Ask Me Anything show. That'll be a two-hour show. That'll be live streamed on radio um, as well. So I'll be busy, but I'm there to mix with people and provide information. Yeah. And and will any of that be captured, video, audio? Uh... It'll be live streamed as well, yes. Okay, okay. But, but recorded for, uh, for, yes, for resale? Okay. Yes, they'll do that as well. All yeah. right. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to, to, love to uh, check out that yeah. conference. Yeah, there's a one on the True Legends I did uh, ah, just nice. as COVID uh, came about. 
And uh, so we couldn't do it live, so we had to do the video stream. Mm. And uh, that's a three-hour presentation you have to do at that conference. And uh, on, if you wanted to get a blow-by-blow um, connection on, and I got so many comments back, but I've never heard anybody lay it out that way and that well before on how you could translate Genesis 1 as the world became formless and void. Uh, I walked through that whole aspect. And wow. so I think they sell their videos on that for a hundred bucks and you get everybody else's in there. But if you really want to have that, but I also have documentation on that too, but it's not quite as thorough as spending three hours going step by step by step through it. And I also lay out my approach to uh, Bible prophecy and scripture as well. And you said that was True Legends Conference? Yep. yep. I think it was 2020 was the COVID year. Is that so. the same True Legends name that Steve Quayle and Tim Bambarino yep. used? Okay. Yep. Yeah, they sought me out to do that. They said, we heard you're the best on this. So. Ooh, all right. <laughs> Good for Gary. Uh, yeah. So I said, well, okay, well, let's do it. They said, well, we want to prove want you to prove it to me. So uh-huh. I said, what do you want to know? He said, have you got any information on it? So I sent him one of my documents. He said, oh, no, you nailed it. You're up. <laughs> You're the guy. <laughs> yep, yep. I love I love those documentaries. Wow. We got them on Vimeo, and uh, I, I share my login with people all the time. Like, yeah, check them out. Yep. We got them for yep. free streaming. So thank yep. you, Gary. This was fantastic. Um, awesome. Look forward to doing it again. And um talking modern day and and bloodlines yep. and uh, yeah what's coming up prophecy all that stuff unpacking it so appreciate it awesome thank you all right this was a pleasure yeah all right we'll take care gary we will uh, be in touch thank you all right till next time all right bye bye been listening to the days of noah podcast thanks for joining us again this week don't forget to like share follow and subscribe our work on your favorite podcast platform tell your family and friends about it and leave us a review and five stars to help grow the channel every little bit helps we appreciate each and every one of you out there and until next time take care god bless